Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Roger Nygaard, whose latest book and documentary, The Truth About Marriage, examines how we can all make relationships happier. Nygaard has directed TV series such as The Office and The Bernie Mac Show, and he has edited Emmy-nominated episodes of Who is America, Veep, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Today, we're going to be talking about his documentary on marriage, and specifically, why relationships are so hard for so many people. We're also going to be talking about the secrets to relationship success and the role of humor in attraction and relationships. I can't wait for this conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. So let's get to it. Hi, Roger, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Glad to be here. I'm glad to be anywhere, but particularly here talking about sex and humor, My fa- two of my favorite topics. Yeah, I mean, during a pandemic, is there anything better to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't laugh, you'll go crazy. So I think I think it's, it's kind of crucial. I, I agree. And I will admit, this is going to be a slightly challenging interview for me to conduct because you've worked on so many of my favorite television shows from The Office to Curb Your Enthusiasm to Veep. And I have so many questions for you about all of them. So before <laughs> I get... Right. Before I get sidetracked by all of that, uh, let's talk about your recent documentary, The Truth About Marriage. I was immediately drawn to it because I saw that you had interviewed a number of my colleagues, including some previous guests on the podcasts, uh, including Drs. John and Julie Gottman. So can you tell us a little bit about your documentary and why you decided to create a documentary about marriage in the first place? Yeah, well, the Gottmans were the hardest to get, and they were the last ones I got because I chased them for a long time. They're they're notoriously interview shy, so congratulations to you for getting them on the show. <laughs> they they actually ended up being my very first guests on the podcast, surprisingly. So. <laughs> Great way to launch. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a funny, quick story. I you know, I really the more I talked to psychologists and therapists, the more I realized they were all referring to a small group, a particular group of researchers for the most part, and John Gottman was one of them. They're all referencing Gottman's theories and ideas and suggestions for maintaining and repairing relationships. So I thought, I've got to go to the Oracle himself. And this this couple, I tracked them down. They're in Portland. They have the Gottman Institute. And I sent emails and made phone calls, left messages, and got no response, no response, no response. But I was determined to get them as a documentarian, you really, you can't take no for an answer. You, you've got to succeed. And finally, I got their publicist on the phone, Katie, and she said that, you know, they just don't do interviews. They only come into the Institute once a month and just not something that they do. It's not going to happen. I said, well, let me just explain. I mean, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I make documentaries. I made it. My first documentary is about Star Trek fans. It's called Trekkies. And she goes, oh, John loves Star Trek. <laughs> So that was my in, and so I got his attention, and they said yes. So that was uh, where it ended. Where it began was with my own failure, and I realized a lot of the experts I interviewed, they became experts in relationships because of their own failures. Like uh, Dr. Pat Allen is a prime example. She teaches seminars here in Los Angeles, has for 40-some years, and she was uh, many, I think, three times divorced. And she tells the story about how she was close to murdering her husband and, and gaining weight. And it was, it was her. She set out to learn why and how to be a better person in relationships, and became this relationship guru essentially. 
And for me, I'm really, I, I guess it's, uh, I'm, I'm a human being and we're all kind of the same in that we, we're, we're a social species and we need to connect with other people socially, romantically, sexually, physically, tactile, uh, emotional. We need to interact and connect. And I felt like a failure because I'd never gotten married. And I got close, at least in my mind, three times with three people I was in love. I felt I was in love. And the, how you know you're in love is because it hurts so much. If it doesn't hurt when you break up, you weren't in love. And I didn't know how painful it could be to break up with somebody. I mean, it, it, you, you go through physical withdrawal. I learned later you're going through a chemical withdrawal. It's like you're a drug addict and you've lost access to your dopamine and your uh, norepinephrine and, and your oxytocin. And, and it really hurts. And you want an end to the pain. After it happened the third time, I knew something was wrong. And, and <laughs> I looked at it this way. As a filmmaker and a documentarian, I look at it kind of reductively. I thought, okay, what's going on here? It's as if the society culture that I'm within has sold me and is selling us this product, saying, you're going to want this. You all want marriage. is the greatest thing. You're, you all need it. You're going to love it. It's going to bring you all the happiness, everything you want. It's the product you've got to have. You're going to love. It's perfect. And we all strive for it. But then if you dig any deeper, let's say this, you've got a salesperson selling it to you. If you ask that salesperson, okay, what's the guarantee for this wonderful product? Oh, no guarantee. Okay, well, what's the success rate? Eh, maybe 50%, 40 60%. You know, there's debate, but about half of them are going to end. If, the, if, if failure, the definition of failure in this case is you don't stay together forever, then about half of them are a failure. And the other half that are a success take a lot of hard work to keep it going. So there is something wrong with the product. And, and I, as a filmmaker, I thought, okay, here's a really juicy question. That's what I gravitate toward. I look for questions that are essentially virtually unanswerable. The, the more challenging it is, the more interesting it is to me because it's got to hold my attention for two, three, four, or in this case, seven years. Well, I, like a, a detective, I'm searching out the clues and trying to get to a solution. My core question was, why are relationships so hard for people? Or why is marriage so difficult? And it turns out there are reasons that we are set up if not for failure, but to make it difficult. And a lot of those reasons are historical. Many are physiological. And once you know the reasons and the problems in the first half of my documentary, The Truth About Marriage, the first half of the and the book is about what are the problems? And then, then I set out to find, okay, just give me some simple solutions. What can I do to change the trajectory of my life now? Easy things, right? Nobody wants to spend years in therapy, even though maybe they need it. But we all want at least, and it turns out, there are some simple things that we're all doing wrong in relationships, some less wrong than others, that you could make a change today, and it, it vastly improves your chances for longevity in a relationship, for happiness, for self-realization, self-actualization, overall well-being. It's not that hard, and I was shocked, really, that no one's teaching us this in school, in high school, they'll teach you everything else from gym class to math and reading and writing, but no one gives you a class on how to have a good relationship. Probably the most important thing you have to do in your, you're going to do in your life is choose a partner forever. There's no guidance. You have to go and make mistakes. But then, I mean, that's why we have psychologists and therapists, thank goodness, 
who then help guide us back to the path toward successful relationships. So the reason I started this film was because of my own failures, and I set out to improve myself. And then the audience, you come along, or the reader in my book, and you learn what I learn as I learn it. So I think what you say is so true and so important that relationships are something that we kind of all have to figure out on our own. And I've often argued that, you know, you can never have too much education when it comes to relationships, to sex, and to money. And these are like three of the most important issues in our lives, yet we totally neglect them in our entire <laughs> educational system. Um, I, I know, for, for example, for a lot of students, they actually don't get the chance to even take a course on sex and relationships unless they actually have the privilege of going to college and then choosing that as an elective. You know, it's just, it's kind of weird the way that we set this system up where some of these topics, these things that are so important in our lives, we just let people fend for themselves, figure it out on their own. So um, I'm thankful to, uh, you know, folks like you who try to do work that helps to educate people based on the science and research and, and what the therapists have to say about how they can improve and enhance their own relationships. So let's start by talking a little bit about what are, why is marriage so hard in the first place? You know, what are just briefly a couple of the key problems and reasons for why marriage are down, divorces are up, and why we're less satisfied in our relationships today than we were in the past? The short answer is that we as human beings are out of sync. Who we are is out of sync with what our culture expects us to be. And so naturally we're frustrated when we can't reach these ideals that are set for us by society, friends, family, television, media, and we all we all fall short. And so we're frustrated with ourselves, we're frustrated with our partners. Why, if, if I promise to love someone forever, why am I still attracted to other people? It makes it challenging and harder. I mean, on the one hand, if something was easy, we wouldn't value it. And so it actually gives it greater value if you have to overcome difficulties to achieve something like expressing love for one person as your primary, most important thing in life. And the reason things changed our culture is is evolving much faster than we are. Homo sapiens, as we exist today, essentially came into being about 200,000 years ago on the African savanna. And all the emotions and feelings that we have are algorithms that run within our brain and our bodies that were designed to keep us alive and s satisfied, if you will, on the African savanna and what we might en encounter in that world. And in that culture of human beings, we lived a very different way than we do now when there's seven plus billion people on the planet. At that time, we lived in small groups of 150 or fewer, which is called Dunbar's number. I'm sure you're aware of that this uh, psychologist, uh, Robin Dunbar, discovered that human beings can emotionally keep track of essentially about 150 people, give or take, you know, a gross, 144. And if you get someone new in your life that's important, someone gets bumped basically, and you just have enough energy, time, and focus for that many people. And that number occurred because that's about the right amount for a group of people to live together in, in, in a tribe or a band, as they're called. And sometimes when the bands got larger than 150, they would split into two bands or two tribes. You see this happening today in corporations, divisions. When they get larger than 150, they split into separate divisions. It's what's natural for humans. What's not natural is having a thousand friends on Facebook. 
or trying to keep track of. I mean, we the reason it, we, we, we can keep track of who owes us a favor, who's pulling their weight, who's being a good person in a small group. You know who's doing their job. If it grows larger than 150, you can't really keep track anymore. And this idea of morality, which I studied in great detail in my prior film, The Nature of Existence, there's something that's called reciprocal altruism that you, the biologists and evolutionary psychologists and biologists see in animals and humans. Any animal or species that lives in groups practices reciprocal altruism. You see it with deer or in groups or humans or birds, whatever. They keep track of who in their group is doing their part. And if someone or some entity, some part of the group is not doing their part, they get ostracized or punished until everyone does their part. Today, when there's seven plus billion people, you don't know if someone's cheating. It's harder to keep track. So a new culture had to evolve that could allow us to live in these massive groups. The dividing line, where the, the big change came in when humans about six to 10,000 years ago discovered agriculture. Before that, we lived in these small tribes and we were nomads and things were virtually essentially unchanged. But in, very recently in human history, in the last 5% of human history, we discovered how to stay in one place, plant our own crops, and it reduced the amount of foods, the, the variety of foods. It, re, it, it created the ability for some people, particularly men, it's, we switched from maternalistic to paternalistic because men's strength became more valuable than women's foraging abilities, and so men were working the farms. And the idea of propriety occurred where men started thinking, well, I own all this. This is my land. This, these are my crops. These are my animals, my wife, my children. I want to make sure I leave my stuff to my genetic offspring. So this idea, they needed a, a way to protect or what the uh, biologists call or the zoologists call mate guarding. You'll see birds doing this, for instance, and, and um, other animals where if you can't, they try to keep track of their, the male tries to keep track of the female 24-7 to make sure that she doesn't mate with somebody else. But if you can't practice 24-7 mate guarding because you're out working the fields or out hunting, you need some other way to try to control the sexual behavior of your mate. And marriage evolved or occurred or came into being as a way to place a social fence around the sexual behavior of women to satisfy men's need to pass on their genetic op genetics to their offspring. And it's not a perfect uh, solution, but it's it's something, in it, but people still cheat when they get a chance. And you, you see it like with swans. People, we used to consider swans monogamous, but it turns out they cheat when their partner's not looking. Most birds they found, are, even though they're socially monogamous, they still cheat sexually. And you can see parallels with humans. So the dividing line of discovering agriculture is where our, our culture began to evolve in a much more rapid sense to become what we have today, which uh, where monogamy has become the dominant social structure that we live within. And it's the best way, monogamy is the best way for humans to exist in the world that we have today. Sounds like you've been talking to Christopher Ryan. Uh, <laughs> uh, he wrote the book Sex at Dawn, which, yes. uh, I, and I've had him, I've interviewed him previously and I've assigned his book in some of my human sexuality courses. And he talks a lot about these ideas and how agriculture was really one of the key moments in changing the course of human relationships. And I always find that to be a really um, 
fascinating take that a lot of people just aren't familiar with and have never really given a lot of thought to. But why would you, right? Exactly. Why would you, anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, we we think the 1950s is ancient history, this uh, traditional marriage era, and it was such a tiny, tiny blip in human history. It's not traditional at all. Traditional would be what we did for 95% of our history, which would be back in, when we, in tribal times. Yeah, so what you're saying is sort of that in our culture today, we have all of these expectations and ideas for what marriage should be that's you know, didn't exist in previous times because that's not the way that we related to one another. And when you look at what some of my other colleagues are saying about marriage today, for example, Eli Finkel, who wrote the book, The All or Nothing Marriage, you know, talks about how expectations are higher. We just keep expecting more and more, and we want our partners to be our anything and everything. And, you know, I think these are ultimately some of the big problems that come up in our relationships is just that there's this mismatch between what we expect from our relationships and then what we're actually getting out of them. So how do we fix some of these problems? What can we do to make our relationships better? What are some of the, the key pieces of advice and information you learned from interviewing all of these great experts? It's really easy. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it turns out <laughs> to understand, but it's, it's actually not that easy to implement because we're so set in our ways. And the first thing you can do is, you, and this is, I'm quoting Christopher Ryan again, First, the first thing you have to do is accept yourself for who you are as a species, as a person, who and what you are, your needs, your desires, what are they? that whatever you are is normal it's natural it's it's what what you consist of is normal and if once you understand who you are then you have to accept who you are then you have to do the same for your partner this is really hard because we 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 generally date someone or marry someone for their potential to become this other idea we have for them <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, comedian Jake Johansson, who's a friend of mine, has this joke where he says, you know, we, we say, I love you, change. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really love somebody if, if, they aren't, if they aren't the person you want them to be? So we, we see potential in people, and sometimes that's actually a great thing because you want people to achieve their potential and to give them, you want to give them goals to improve. But what is the solution? So first of all, accepting yourself and your partner for who you are. That's the key to happiness. Very difficult. Your partner might be leaving their socks on the floor forever, and eventually you're just going to have to accept it. Or your partner may need have some needs you're not fulfilling. And the one, if I was going to boil it down to one thing, this is what it is that I learned from all the experts. They all said this, essentially. And right now I'm speaking to the masculine half you know, we have masculine, these words masculine and feminine, which sometimes people don't like, and you can use whatever words you want, but we have different baskets of behaviors and feelings and emotions that generally occur in a different assortment in ourselves and in our partner. And you might be the more masculine or the more feminine one. Male or female, gay or straight, everything in between um, can equally have different assortments. We tend to get together better. We, we're meant to complete each other, not to duplicate each other. That's why two alphas don't work as well together, for instance, and two masculines don't work together. You need a, a good blend. Maybe you're 60% masculine behavior and 40% feminine, what have you. Your partner, ideally, should have a corresponding opposite blend so that you 
you fill in each other's gaps and you your and strengths and you, there's a reason why you make a better partnership. Now here's the thing that people don't do and it's become even harder because of technology. What you should do when you come home, the masculine one, the one who's in their masculine phase, is every night the feminine partner or the feminine side of you, and I have a feminine side and, and I need this too sometimes, the feminine side needs to be heard, needs to express the emotions you've felt during the day, to process, you process, process them by expressing them to someone who sees you, who's listening, and who feels for you, who has empathy for you. The way you can facilitate that, because you, that person needs about 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, maybe half an hour per day of listening time. You facilitate that by coming home and saying, honey, how was your day? It's really that simple. Honey, how are you feeling? Tell me what happened during your day, and then shut up. Before you do that, put your cell phone on airplane mode, turn off the TV, close the computer, make eye contact, and connect and say, honey, how was your day? And then shut up. Don't try to fix anything. Don't offer any suggestions. They don't want your consultation. They just need to process, verbalize, express, and then empathize. That's what they, they need is, oh, that's terrible. That's wonderful. I'm so happy that happened. Oh, no. Those are expressions of empathy. I'm not trying to fix it by saying, oh, you should do this or you should do that. Eliminate the word should from your vocabulary. It's at, you need to practice and learn the, the skill of active listening and seeing that person and feeling what they're feeling. And they need it. It's like a vitamin. It's like a relationship, an emotional vitamin that the feminine needs daily. And if you don't give, give it, and, and if, if that person doesn't get it, they're going to feel unsatisfied, frustrated, leads to anger, arguments. It comes out in other ways. So it's a great experiment. It costs you nothing. Just try it for a week or two. See what happens. Come home every day. Honey, how was your day? And then shut up. See what happens. Sex will get better. You both will feel better. You're both happier. You have more energy. Everyone does better. That's one half of the equation. The other half of this equation is that here's what the vitamin that the masculine needs, whether you're male, female, or somewhere in between, when you're in your masculine. We have this need to connect because we're social creatures, sexually, physically, emotionally. We need to connect. We also need to disconnect, too. We need to maintain our individuality. When you get together with someone, you don't become one. You do. You become three. You become me, you, and us. And so for the us, we need to connect. But we also, in the masculine particularly, once we connect, we start to yearn for freedom. And we go through this orbit between connection and disconnection. And we need that disconnection. And when you try to stand in the way of that and prevent the disconnection, it leads to frustration because you're not getting your need met, which leads to anger and arguments, and it comes out in other ways. So the best way to facilitate the disconnection is to come home and say, or whenever, uh, honey, I'm going swimming with my pals. Honey, I'm going fishing with the boys. Honey, I'm going dancing with the girls. Honey, I'm going to go to... Uh, visit my parents for the weekend, and then always finish after you announce your disconnection. At the same time, you have to announce when you're going to reconnect. And I can't wait to see you for dinner at 7 p.m. Or I can't wait to see you Sunday night when I get home at 5 p.m. Now, you've announced your disconnection. When you'll reconnect, your partner feels secure and 
knows what you're doing, knows you're disconnecting, recognizes it for what it is, and it's something that's healthy and natural. And when you come back, your batteries are going to be recharged. You're, you're going to be excited to see each other again. It, you're going to be sexually uh, renewed. Everything, go, you go through a renewal by going through this orbit. Without, If you try to block that orbit, you're going to block the flow of energy, and you're going to reduce your passion. You're going to reduce your desire for each other, your happiness. And finally, the uh, one other corollary to this important corollary is that when you say i'll be home i can't wait to see you at 7 p.m make sure you're actually home at 7 p.m or call because keeping your word is crucial because it's part of trust so it sounds like what you're saying is that one of the big keys to relationship success is finding that right balance between having that closeness and intimacy with your partner that emotional connection but also having that space and independence and autonomy and you know, this is something I see where a lot of people have a really hard time finding that balance because, for example, they feel like if you're married, that that person should be your best friend and you should do literally everything together. <laughs> yeah, no, wrong, bad, yes. don't do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and this is something that a lot of people are, are really struggling with now during the pandemic where so many of us are spending even more time together where maybe both partners are working from home and they can't go out and do their favorite things that they used to do in the past. And so striking that balance at this particular point in time, I think is something that is especially challenging. Um, so let me, let me ask this. So you've learned a lot about why relationships often go wrong and what helps to make for successful relationships. So in the process of learning all of this, has this changed your own romantic life in any way? Do you think that these lessons have been helpful and practical to you? Oh, vastly. I, I, I feel vastly more able to carry on a, a healthy relationship I was sabotaging my relationships in the past. I mean, I can see that now going backwards because I would get frustrated and needed that freedom. And I didn't realize that freedom is normal. Desire for freedom is normal and it should be allowed and you should, you, you need to, to satisfy that need. And you can do it in a healthy way where both partners understand and are taking part in it. And But if you don't understand that, you start to think, oh, the relationship's gone bad, I'm falling out of love. And you begin to sabotage the relationship and force your partner to break up with you. Or <laughs> you have strategies for, for undermining things so you can feel better about destroying the relationship. And it's so much easier when you can give someone what they need. It's shocking to see how simple it is sometimes. When, when someone's upset, our instinct is to defend, particularly if you're the logical one to 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 uh, try to litigate and play back the tape. You said this, I said that, you see how I was right here. That doesn't help you get back to happiness faster. The goal is to get back to happiness when you're in a conflict. The way to happiness, faster way to happiness is to listen and say, I, I understand how you're feeling. And, and then probably apologize even if it's not your fault you can apologize for your part in it and the best question you can ask in any conflict is tell me what can i do to help you feel better if you can say that instead of well you said and i said and defending yourself doesn't matter because when someone's hurting particularly someone who's in their emotional stage and they're hurting it doesn't matter what really happened what matters is if I need to be heard, 
I know I need to know that you heard me and that you're feeling me. And if as soon as I feel that, it's over. And we're back to happiness much more quickly than spending two weeks being or two days or whatever being mad at each other until you finally come out of that funk <laughs> naturally. <laughs> you can get there so much faster. Honey, what can I do to help you feel better? I'm so sorry that happened. I, I feel terrible. Uh, offering to help and then a hug. That solves everything. Well, the the physical contact is so important. And, and it's ultimately one of the big reasons why a lot of couples disconnect over time is because the longer that they spend together, the less just touch there is in their everyday life. And it's so important, not just, you know, having it be part of conflict situations, but also to have it just as part of your everyday daily interactions. That's part of that idea of, of staying connected uh, that, that we talked about as being so important. But since we're on the topic of touch, let's move to the topic of sex for a little bit, because I know that that's something else that you touch on a bit in your documentary. And one of the questions you ask is, how important is sex in a relationship? So how important is it? Yeah, it's crucial. I mean, <laughs> The first thing we do is bond on a chemical basis. Sex is a physical and chemical bonding. Sex is a, a way to release the chemicals that we need that, that help create and maintain bonding. One of the experts I interviewed said that couples should make sure they have sex once a week at least, even if they don't feel like it, to help maintain their physical and their mental and, and, and emotional bond. You get something from your partner. You get dopamine, norepinephrine, oxytocin, which is called the cuddle hormone. You get these things when you hold hands, when you hug, when you touch, massage, and sex, orgasm is a big boost, a big burst of these hormones. Without them, you will start to feel less bonded. And so there is a mathematical relationship <laughs> to having sex and maintaining a relationship that you, you, you shouldn't ignore. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't feel like having sex. And, and it's hard to get out of that need or desire. If you're mismatched sexually, this is one of the things that the most of the psychologists I talked to, and particularly the divorce attorney that I interviewed, when I asked them, you know, what is the most important thing toward keeping a relationship together? And they said, sex. And when the divorce attorney said that, he said that was the number one sign he, he saw in relationships when people were breaking up or getting divorced. It was they, were, they became or were mismatched sexually. Either someone wasn't getting enough, someone was getting too much, they wanted different things. If, you're, if you can't find the proper integration between yourself and your partner sexually, then you're, you, as one of the psychologists, Bill Doherty, said, you become roommates if you're not having sex. I wanted to go back to, to one point you raised about this idea that couples should have sex once a week um, in, in order to stay connected. Um, one thing that I would say based on that is that I have seen some research where couples are instructed to double the amount of sex that they're having because a lot of people say they want more sex in their relationship and they think they'd be happier if they did it more. But in the research where people are just kind of going through the motions and having sex just for the sake of doing it, 
what they see is that that actually makes them less happy in the end and that it actually makes them desire sex less. And so, you know, I, I understand the idea that you want couples to stay together, to stay connected, but the sex and the way that they approach it can't just be that going through the motions type of thing, but rather I think it may be a different or perhaps better way to approach it is to think about, you know, if sex is something that you're going to schedule and you're going to do because you think it's important is to use that as an opportunity to build up the anticipation for it. Use it as an opportunity to say, Hey, I know sex is going to happen here at this point. So I'm going to get in the right mindset for it to make sure that the sex is really good and exciting because when the sex is, is good, that's the thing that makes you want it more. So that, that would just sort of be the caveat that I would add is that, it's not just having sex, it's the way that you approach sex that I think is really one of the keys to having a healthy sex life and relationship. Well, think about if you were told you have to eat daily or you'll die. Well, of course, you, you do, right? But no one's telling you you have to eat pod thai noodles daily, the same dish every day, once a day, or you'll die. You, 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 I'd rather die than eat the same food over and over again, I think. Eventually, I would get so tired of it. So what do you do? We approach food with culinary skills and creativity and presentation is different and different meals and flavors and tastes. And, and so I would say passion versus sex. Sex is kind of perfunctory. You can have sex in three minutes and you've had sex, but to have a passionate evening, the foreplay might start three or four days before that and you lead up to it and you do it differently. And I have a whole chapter in the book in my book about passion, how to rekindle passion, because it naturally fades. I asked couples in my documentary, what is the normal number of times you have sex per week? And all the married couples said, eh, once or twice. And then I said, okay, well, how many times did you have sex when you were first dating? And they go, oh, four or five times a day and instead of twice a week. So it, it, there's a diminishing return that's happening. And we don't want to diminish. We want to maintain that initial excitement. But you can't for a couple of reasons. One is your body can't take it. It's, it's a lot of stress involved. It's good stress. It's fun stress. But a lot of that fast-beating heart and excitement and adrenaline, it takes a toll over time. And your passion evolves or changes into compassion for childbearing. And so you have to reduce the amount of energy you put into this crazy sexual passion but you can rekindle it, you can recapture it. And there are researchers that study this very thing about how to rekindle passion. And one of the studies showed that what you can do is, what you need to do is, I mean, the simple answer is go on more dates, So right? Have a date night, date week, but specifically, what should you do on that date? They found that physical activity together increases passion, doing some, some new, physical activity, finding a new sport, going to uh, an amusement park and riding the roller coaster, going skiing, taking up ballroom dancing, something new and physical because the excitement of the activity, you transfer those, those positive feelings to your partner and that increases passion. And in these studies, they would have people like couples who were in, at the nadir of their passion, they just bounce around in these little kids' bouncy balls. And then they would report feelings of passion and fun and excitement returning just by doing something fun. We don't do that anymore. We come home and sit on the couch and watch Netflix and do the, get into the same pattern. So 
you have to mix it up. You need we want surprise, a surprise week, a surprise date, maybe a, a go a new environment changes your perception of your partner. So a new room in the house, in the car, in a, in a hotel, a different country, have different places to have sex, try new things, uh, role play, pretend, go to have your your partner go to a bar once bars are open again, and then you show up and you pretend not to know each other. And just play out a little a, a, a passion play, <laughs> if you will, where you pretend to pick up your wife or husband and take them home. You just have to do new things and keep the surprises coming. Don't fall into a pattern. That's what we naturally do. Naturally do. We fall into a pattern, and that's what we maintain. And it's like eating the same pod thai noodles every day, as much as I love pod thai noodles. Yeah, and I think that speaks to something that is a really good question to ask is what are you doing to make sex fun? And I think that if I go back to that study where couples were instructed to double the amount of sex they were having, well, if they weren't having great sex to begin with, or sex was kind of boring, and then they're just having twice as much boring sex, well, of course they're going to want it less. So, you know, maybe the version of the study they should do next is to say, you know, it's not just increase the amount of sex you're having, but add something new to it each time you do it. And you might find a totally different pattern of results if that were the case. Uh, I think that ultimately this is one of the big issues that emerges in so many relationships is that it just becomes sex is the same every time. It's in the missionary position Thursday night after you watch the news before you go to bed. And, you know, of course, <laughs> that's why sex tends to decline in a lot of relationships is because it just it's, it's the same thing every time. We're running short on time here. So one of the things I wanted to turn the conversation to was humor. And you're somebody who has worked a lot on television comedies. And I take it that humor is a pretty big part of your life. And it's also a big part of our intimate lives. In fact, in study after study, we see that humor is reliably related as one of the most desirable traits in a romantic partner. So tell us a little bit about what you see the role of humor being in our relationships and intimate lives. Well, part of when you're selecting a partner, you want someone who can uh, make you laugh for 50 years. That's going to take a lot of material. <laughs> a heck so, of a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> so you want someone, you've got to be charming. And uh, you've got to be able to engage and entertain each other. So that's why it's important that you connect well in, in that regard. You're amused by each other. You uh, entertain each other. You, you make each other laugh. And, but not in the bedroom. Laughter is for getting to the bedroom. Once you're in the bedroom, no, don't never joke. <laughs> this is a different, it's the more animal side of us comes out, not the humor side. The cerebral intellectual side gets us into the bedroom so the animals can, can have sex. And then we can <laughs> go back to being uh, cerebral humans. I found that when I was young, I wanted to make people laugh because my father was very funny and he made people laugh and I wanted to be like him. And so I have pursued a path of making films and documentaries and working on television shows that make people laugh. And laughter releases endorphins and it, it, it's good for your health and it makes you feel better. If you want to get laid, bring your partner to a comedy show because laughter releases all these good chemicals and they feel good and they tr transfer those good feelings to you. And afterward, when you're feeling good, sex comes naturally. So it, it, learn a few good jokes, you know, and the best jokes are, are, once again, just like what keeps sexual appetite alive is surprise. The basis of a joke is surprise. 
you tell a story and, and it has a twist that you don't see coming at the end. In my documentaries, even in the nature or in the in my my marriage documentary, The Truth About Marriage, it's a very funny documentary. And I to me it's a comedy first, with a lot of really useful information about how to fix and help and improve relationships as a part of it. But interviewing psychologists, I found was really funny. They're funny people because humor and intelligence correlate. You, you f I find that the, the best comedians are really intelligent people generally, and people who love humor tend to be very intelligent people. You have to have intelligence to decipher the reason why something's funny, and our brains do it very quickly because we're designed to laugh. You can see children la laugh before they can talk. It's part of who, who we are. And children experience laughter and joy naturally. They don't need an excuse for it. They don't, you don't, they don't need permission. And part of what we're trying to do as adults is to get back to what we experienced as children naturally. And we feel guilty sometimes for feeling good. But <laughs> you're, you, you have every right to feel good. And humor and laughter are one of the ways that gets us there. Yeah, and I, I appreciate everything you said about humor. The one thing I would just push back on a little bit is that I think it is okay sometimes to laugh in the bedroom. And sex <laughs> sex doesn't always have to be so serious. And sometimes it can be really fun and playful. And sometimes laughter is an appropriate response to, to some of the things that happen during sex. For example, when the, the cap from the bottle of lube goes flying off and hits somebody, you know, like that, <laughs> you know, you can acknowledge that. Like it, it's, it's, so I would just say different things work for different people in the bedroom. And if you want to be a little bit more fun and playful and have a little laughter, great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always more the you do you and figure out what works in your, in your sex life and relationship. But, I don't disagree with any of that. Yeah, I think because <laughs> then you're laughing with each other. It's yes. when if you laugh at your partner, exactly. then then you're putting them on the defensive and it's hard to stay stay firm when someone's laughing at you. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Now, speaking of humor, let's talk about some of those great shows that you've worked on. Uh, you've worked with some of the greatest comedic talents of our time, including uh, Larry David and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And I've been a huge fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm for years. Actually, my parents introduced me to the show. Uh, and we, <laughs> every time we get together, we always watch some episodes of it. And I also love Veep. Um, it, it's funny, that's a show that I tried to start watching several years ago, but I couldn't quite get into it. But I happened to be on a plane a few months ago before the pandemic uh, because I travel around for my work and I do all these lectures and workshops across the country. And I had seen everything in the Delta like TV catalog that they had on the flight. So I'm like, all right, let me give Veep a try again. And it was from the, the most recent, the final season. And God, just such a fucking brilliant show. And so I started watching, you know, I watched the whole last season through to the end. And then I went back and watched all the previous seasons. And I, it's just ridiculously smart and funny. So I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to work on all of these, these great shows, but I'm curious, can you tell us any fun stories you have about uh, working with, with so many of these amazing people? Well, I'm, I, I'll use the word blessed to have a job like this where I can go into the office and laugh every day so much at such talented people. I mean, Veep, we had an amazing cast and they were all top level funny people. And the writing was as good as it gets. Curb Your Enthusiasm, I mean, there's nobody. Larry is a, Larry David is a one of our living icons of comedy. And I love learning from him 
about comedy. And I get to choose what's funny. What makes me laugh is what goes into the TV show. So you're watching what I think is funny. <laughs> <laughs> so luckily, Larry David and uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Dave Mandel, the showrunner on Veep, and Jeff Schaefer, another showrunner on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm and The League, they have learned to trust me in making my choices. I get hired as an editor because I choose the right takes and make them look good and so they can spend less time in the editing room getting it to where it needs to be. That's a skill that I have uh, found I had and learned over time. And editing is essentially just you're rewriting the script. You're, you're like a writer who comes in for the final polish and I'll move things around, change things around, change words, change enunciation to try to find the funniest version of any given scene. And it's just like writing. The, uh, brevity is the key. You want the shortest, most concise version between a setup and a punchline. That's possible. And when you're talking to your spouse and you're telling stories, Try to do the same thing is some advice I'll give you. If you want to be funnier and more entertaining, cut out the tangents and get to the point. <laughs> Make the tangent a different story. And you're going to find people like you better <laughs> if you become a better storyteller. We love good storytellers. And it's a skill that we all have and can uh, improve upon by thinking about it as three-act structure. You have a setup, you have rising action, you have complications, and then you have a climax and a resolution. Every joke, every story, every movie, all of your favorite movies, they follow this format. And it's the way humans like stories to be told to them, or jokes. Um, and I learned that over time, and it's helpful if you want to... Uh, uh, be the life of the party or just be the life of your relationship to keep your stories short and then become a good listener and let your partner tell a story. Mm -hmm. I think that's great advice. And I also can't imagine the level of trust that someone like Larry David must have in you to be responsible for choosing uh, the right versions of the jokes. And, and also what enormous pressure that must be because uh, you're responsible for the way that they come off to, to the rest of the world. So that's it's got to be a super fascinating and fun, but also high stress job in a lot of ways. It's all of the above. Yeah, but it, the challenge makes it uh, enjoyable. And I'll finish with this. One of the best pieces of advice I got from psychologists that I interviewed for the documentary was, if you're thinking of getting married right now, the best thing you can do to improve your chances for success and the longevity of your marriage and or relationship and happiness within is to go to premarital counseling and talk about all of the things that you have, all the expectations you have for each other in this relationship. Most people don't do that, and so then they're they're headed for a series of surprises and and uh, frustrations and upsets, because if you marry someone whose core values are vastly different from yours and you didn't get to the bottom of that, it's going to be very difficult. But if you find out your core values are in sync, or if they're not, at least you're aware of them, and now you're going in knowing the rules, you have a much better chance for success. 
And I think that's a great place to leave it. So thank you, Roger, for this wonderful conversation. I think you've given my listeners a lot to think about. Can you please tell us uh, where we can go to learn more about your work and the truth about marriage? Absolutely. Yeah, the truth about marriage.com has links to the book and the documentary and all my other films are or rogernygard.com. My last name is spelled N-Y-G-A-R-D. And I love hearing from people. Feel free to let me know what you think of the film or the book. I, I love hearing from people. Well, thank you again for your time and for sharing your insights. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on Apple, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate the podcast. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, which was just released in paperback edition this summer. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>